The holidays are months away, but it's never too soon to feel inadequate. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, October 3rd. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, author Dorothy Rosby is with us. We'll talk about how she became a humor columnist. And we'll peek ahead to events like Friday the 13th and Halloween in search of a good laugh to pair with a good fright. Two billion adults in the world are overweight or have obesity, but obesity is a medically treated disease. Our Prairie Doc segment today talks medication and the benefits of behavior changes that don't necessarily show up on the scale. Plus, today's Teacher Talk unpacks how to become a teacher as we search for the next generation of classroom leaders, even if it's your second career. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. This week is Banned Books Week. October 1st through the 7th is time to celebrate the freedom to read in America. The American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom documented 1,269 demands to censor library books and resources in 2022. That is the highest number of attempted book bans since the ALA began compiling data about censorship in libraries more than 20 years ago. On the other hand, 71% of voters oppose efforts to remove books from public libraries. Joining me today by phone, we have South Dakota Library Association President Sarah Jones-Luder. Sarah is also the library director at the Redfield Public Library. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Help us understand the role that public libraries play in South Dakota, particularly in rural communities. So a lot of people think public libraries are just books, and that is not the case anymore. We are community centers. You know, today we have two story hours. Yesterday we had a Lego club. We have a book club next week. I mean, this is just my small little rural library in Redfield. So we're just, we're big spaces, and we are welcoming of everybody in these free public spaces. Tell me a little bit about what goes into the kinds of programs that you plan, how that's connected to community, and then the kinds of books that you curate, because I'm guessing that your budget in Redfield is not unlimited and you have to make choices. (laughs) So what kinds of things go into that decision-making? Well, it's very much what the community wants. Uh, With the Lego Club, I actually did a dot board a few years ago with different programs, and I asked my community, which of these programs do you want to see? And I had music programs on it there thinking that would be popular, but it was actually Lego Club and Book Club. (laughs) So I asked them what they wanted, and then we tried to give it to them. Tell me a Uh, little. With books. Go ahead. Yes, go ahead, Lori. No, no, you can finish the second. I asked you two questions. Go ahead for the second one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with books, I wish I could buy all the books. I'm actually the person that buys the books for the library, and I organize them kind of by genre and by age because personally I love thrillers, but I can't buy 20 thrillers a month. So I kind of have tried to do a little bit of every genre of every age. So everybody has an option to read what they want um, in our library. Let's talk a little bit about um, book challenges and book bans. What do librarians across the state need to know this week as we look at Banned Books Week? What's the conversation you want them to have? Well, it's important to know that libraries provide free access to everybody, so that's important that you have these books available, but you're not forcing anybody to read these books. 
parents have that choice what their children can read. Um, if a person, a patron does not like what you have in your library, you should have a form they can fill out. People are allowed to voice their concerns. And you can have these forms that they fill out, and you can bring that to your board, and that can be a discussion. Um, have the paperwork, have the documentation, and allow people a voice to be heard. The effort to remove books from libraries, like with sweeping generalizations of no books about this topic, no books about that topic, mm -hmm. is becoming more of an organized effort nationwide. Are South Dakota libraries seeing an, a, an increase in book challenges or an increase in organization around book challenges? What can you tell us? They have seen an increase in book challenges, and there has been a little bit of organized. I believe in it was either Brookings or Watertown. They did have an organized one where there was a list, you know, of 100 books. Brookings, yeah. Um, we do have less than many other places in the country, but it is increasing right now. And tell me a little bit about community support. Also, uh, in the Brookings story, there were a large number of community members who stood up and said, no, we, we don't want this in, our, you know, we don't want this kind of pressure on our public libraries or our school libraries. What do you know about what South Dakota librarians are seeing regarding community support and community connections? Well, that's the big thing in South Dakota. It's very local. Everything is very small and based in our communities. And our communities do support us. They are saying we want this free access information because this might be the only place you can get it within 40 or 50 miles. Yeah. We have great community support for us providing this access. I cannot get enough of stories about libraries, so let me know what else you want to talk about in the future. But for now, we'll call it, we'll call it good for Banned Books Week with you. South Dakota Library Association President Sarah Jones-Luter has been our guest. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. We have a representative from the On Call with the Prairie Doc team with us today. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth is a family medicine practitioner at the Avera Medical Group in Brookings. He's joining us today with a look at the health benefits of losing weight as well as possible treatment options for obesity. Dr. Ellsworth is with us on the phone. Hi, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Lori. This is a topic that I think on call with the Prairie Doc, you know, revisits maybe even every season, but every season there's something new. Tell me a little bit about why this conversation is different this year than maybe it was even last year. Yeah, you know, I don't know if we have. I mean, certainly oh. we're always a proponent of, of, of exercising and eating healthy, and that's, you know, what it does come down to. Um, but... You know, I don't know offhand if I recall a specific show geared towards uh, weight loss and obesity. Okay. Well, Dr. Rick Holm was always talking to me about... I'm sure he's... Yeah. You know, <laughs> walking more and eating less. Exactly. And it was... So maybe exactly. I'm conflating those two with actual broadcasts. <laughs> In that case, then, why now? Why is it a significant show to have right now? Well, it is, you know, it is such a such a, a big topic and... and, and uh, and it, so many people want to lose weight or, or think they want to lose weight. And, of course, I want to start out by saying it's important to talk to your doctor first and, and explore your reasons for wanting to lose weight and, and how you can do that in a healthy manner. 
Um, but there are lots of health benefits and, 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 you know, it's not just to look good. And if that's your reason, that might not be a great reason, but it certainly can be really important for, for your health and to help you feel better, help your energy level, help your aches and pains and your joints, um, help decrease your risk of diabetes and heart disease. And, um, it just, the list goes on and on. Okay, I want to pull on the thread a little bit of what you just said about maybe if it's just not to look good, or maybe if your main purpose is to look better or to you know feel better in your clothes, that might not be the best reason. But that also might be an indication that something else is going on. And so as a family practice physician, when do you know that somebody needs extra help because they are presenting with things that might be eating disorders or disordered eating versus somebody saying, hey, I put on some pandemic stress pounds and I need to do this next thing, or I'm worried about, you know, heart disease in my family. It's time to get serious about, you know, having a healthy weight. But what do you hear in the doctor's office that makes you say, this is something that needs to be treated or evaluated for eating disorder? Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess, the, the obvious would be if they're already quite thin or, you know, normal weight and they're talking about losing weight, I might want to explore that with them. Um, but, you know, someone can be overweight or obese and have an eating disorder as well. Yeah. And sometimes it can get tricky. It's just like um, alcoholism or any other um, uh, mental disorder. It can be something people don't want to talk about and something people may want to try to hide too. And uh, I can't say I'm going to always be the perfect person for that, but I'll do my best, but it's, you know, something to explore and talk about and, uh, and consider, consider the reasons. And, and of course, uh, exploring this with a counselor um, can also be quite, quite helpful too. I've also been watching, I know Oprah Winfrey is a flashpoint for weight loss in our society, depending on about how you feel about the work she's done over the years. But she has a new um, online conversation where she talks to several doctors about weight loss. And in that, they talk about 2 billion adults worldwide are overweight or have obesity. And they're really talking about obesity as a chronic, relapsable disease. Um, what have you learned that is, again, changing maybe what you learned in medical school about how obesity is treated? Yeah, you know. I mean, we're just going to ask the all the hand, big questions today, Andrew. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> on the one hand, you've got, well, you just need to eat less and exercise more. But on the other hand, there's all these factors in a person's metabolism. Um, a person's mental state, and, and let alone their ability to, to, to exercise or not, uh, based on whatever medical conditions or their joints, um, let alone getting bombarded by advertisements for food and uh, maybe not having the availability of healthy options, or at least not at an affordable price. I mean, you know, we can dig right. deep in so many Those ways. Those social determinants of health, mad, yeah. Social determinants of health yeah. still matter when it comes to, yeah, yeah. Keep going. Sorry, yeah. I interrupted but, you. But, but, but with that said, I, do, I have had a lot of patients be successful um, the good old-fashioned way, for lack of a better term, um, and people can do it, and it can help to maybe have an app or a person or a county building partner or someone you're doing it with to help give you encouragement 
and to help um, keep track of your calories. And remember that we drink a lot of our calories now, too, especially with all the fancy coffee drinks. There's a lot of calories in there. Um, and how many people have lost weight by uh, adding a walk to their day or cutting out pop or cutting out that fancy coffee drink and just going to a regular black coffee or whatever can make a big, big difference. Yeah. If you don't notice the difference on the scale, is it still worth doing? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that point out, too. Any effort you make at eating healthy and exercising more is going to help you be healthier, period, and often give you all those benefits of weight loss, even if you don't lose the pounds. Um, and so it's just a matter of habit, getting that habit established and, um, and, and working at it. Now, granted, like I said, people have different metabolisms, different factors at play, and sometimes medications or surgery might be uh, an option. And that's something we can also talk about uh, during the show uh, with my guests that, that help people with those. It, it is interesting, some of the new medications, how helpful they've been for some people. But a lot of times, whether it's surgery or medication, in the end, what it's doing is helping you eat less. Hmm. One of the things that I learned from Oprah, <laughs> and this is why we have the yeah. Prairie Doc, right? This is why we have yeah. On Call with Prairie Doc, because here we are having a real conversation with a real physician in South Dakota versus a video that I watched on YouTube, right? But sure. it's sure. a question to ask your regular doctor. They mentioned that some of these uh, GLP-1 agonists um, mm -hmm. don't work for everybody because you might take it and, and not lose weight, which means it's not treating the pathway dysfunction that you have. Does that make any sure. sense to you? Help me understand what they were saying there and whether it's true or not. You know, it, I've seen it definitely help with um, a person's appetite and help decrease their appetite, decrease the amount of food they consume, and thus they can start to lose weight. Now, let alone it's also meant for diabetes, and that's right. in some ways a completely different reason anyway. Um, but yes, some people will lose weight. Some people can lose quite a bit of weight. Some people might only lose a little. And then we have to explore other options or see what else is, what other factors are going into this. Absolutely. Yeah. One more question. I'll let you go. I can't wait for this uh, on call with the Prairie Doc show, though. And that is, I know a lot of people, and I think you already know this is a doctor, but maybe you don't, who have some kind of thing going on and they don't go to the doctor because it's probably just that I'm overweight. And I'm just wondering how dangerous that can be to not go to your, your family doctor and say, I'm having this pain, say it's a, you know, a, a, a knee pain or, you know, like whatever, something that's happening to you that you think you're just going to hear at the doctor that you need to lose weight. And so you don't go. How important yeah. is it then to have an open, honest conversation with your patients that doesn't shame them or dismiss right something as just being another reason to lose weight when already that's tough for them to face. I, I do. I do. It does uh, sadden my heart when patients come in with an issue um, and they say, well, I saw someone and they just said I need to lose weight. And, yeah. and, and granted um, the weight is often a factor in a lot of things. Um, it can be, you know, if you have more weight on a joint, that joint can, can hurt more. But the bottom line is there's also still something going on with that joint, whether it's arthritis or an injury or, or, or something. And, and, you know, so many things have so many factors. And, and weight can be part of the equation. But it, it's, 
it's too simplified to say, well, you just need to lose weight. Yeah. Um, and so I, I apologize on behalf of the medical community <laughs> if that's the, the, the message and that they, they weren't, didn't get uh, more help with, with their issue. Um, and so sometimes it takes uh, seeing someone else. Yeah. You know that 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 you're going to connect with more. Um, some people uh, fit better with a, a provider who is maybe more um, blunt, and some that are less blunt or whatever. Right. You know, right. so um, it's not all one size fits all with weight loss. It's not all <laughs> one size fits all with finding the the right medical solution for someone. And you know what? Our bodies are all different, too, so it's not all one size fits all about what you're supposed to look like in your clothes. So we'll leave it there. (laughs) On call with the Prairie Duck on SDPB-TV and on the Prairie Duck Facebook page this uh, upcoming episode, Thursday, October 5th, 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, always a delight. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lori. You are a beautiful person just the way you are, (laughs) and so so am I, and so is everyone. Thank you for that. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, holidays can be an opportunity to gather, to celebrate, or as Halloween is coming up, to enjoy some good scares. But humorist and writer Dorothy Rosby examines holidays from a slightly different point of view. Her book is called, her most recent book is called, Tis the Season to Feel Inadequate. And it is a romp through the holiday calendar that covers everything from the big dogs like Christmas to the lesser known special occasions. Dorothy is in the studio for the first time. Hello. It's good to see you in person. It's good to see you in person. Um, you're here for Augustana Library Association, yes. which I am unapologetically um, a supporter of. Oh, yay, you. <laughs> I'm an Augie grad. And, Me too. Uh, and that really? Yep. See, we have so many things in common. Yes. How did you become a newspaper columnist, a syndicated newspaper columnist? So, Because I wrote for the Augie Mirror, and I was a columnist for them. I did, too. There you I go. wrote for them, too. Well, actually, <laughs> it, I started writing a column. I was first a humorous speaker. Okay. And I was in Toastmasters a million years ago, and I loved doing the humorous speeches. So eventually I typed my speeches up, and I polished them up, and I sent them to my local paper, and they took me on as a humor columnist. And then I just promoted to other papers from there, and now I'm in, you know, 40-some publications. So what was the difference for you with being a humor speaker via Toastmasters versus a stand-up comic? Because you've done a little bit of both that it could be, like sometimes I'm watching your YouTube stuff and I'm like, that's just good stand-up comedy. Yeah, and there, I think this, there is a slight difference. With stand-up comedy, it's, it's one joke after another, one joke after another. And with being a humorous speaker, you're more like telling stories, maybe going on a little bit. It isn't all funny. There's some, you yeah. know. And honestly, speaking and writing to me are kind of the same thing. I, I really try to write like I talk. Your which, columns read well out. Loud. Yeah, and I, and I love to read out loud. Which means I you just... could be at the kitchen table. We used to call it like the Hey Martha article or the Hey Martha um, moment in journalism where you write something and you hope that that's the moment that the person reading goes, hey, Martha, listen to this. Yes. <laughs> and they start reading it out loud, right? Like yes. that's your column. I do. Yeah, I, I hope that I have people do that. But I really do like to write like I talk. And yeah. I love to read out loud. 
yeah. which is kind of goofy. I actually, this was totally insane for the first time ever. I did an audio book of this book. You I did? Ne- oh. I, I, wa- I wanted to for so long. Yeah. And this is my fourth book, but this is the first time I've done that. Because a million years ago, I was in radio. And then for my previous job, I did a lot of recording, too. And I just had a ball doing it. Not that it was easy. Because, right. you know, doing a little video is a lot different from reading, uh, you know, an entire book. Who were some of your favorite columnists? Because um, there was a time when, you know, we grew up with columnists and we, like, followed them. I'm not sure people do that quite as much as they used to, but... Because yeah. now they follow bloggers. Right. But we were following the columnists. Who were your favorites? Well, I did grow up reading Irma Bombeck. Yeah. I, I loved Irma Bombeck. And I also, a little later, loved Dave Barry. Yeah. Um, I, I love them. And now I I don't read a humor column, but I do read a lot of humor blogs. Yeah. I belong to the National Society of Newspaper Columnists, and I know some people who they blog their, you know, their writing, or also they send links to their columns. And then also the Irma Bombeck Writers Workshop has a quite a following on Facebook, and they people post their, yeah. their writing on there. So I do read a lot of humor, but not so much in solid books anymore, or, right. or you know, yeah. I so. say this all the time. I used to read Jean Kerr. Like, she didn't publish when I, w- I, I mean, she's kind of an old columnist, but I found her books in the library, mm-hmm. K-E-R-R, probably not even in the library anymore. Hilarious. Hilarious I, commentary on being a woman in the 1950s. I need to find her because you're <laughs> yeah. the second person that's mentioned that, and I, like I've not read her. Yeah, she's yeah. like pre-Irma Bombeck. Wow, yeah. yeah. And I loved Anna Quinlan, not a humor columnist, but I a columnist, yep. and I just loved her, and Mike Royko is my all-time favorite columnist. Mm-hmm. I just loved him. I like Connie Schultz. I don't know her. Oh, but she's yeah. in Ohio. And, okay. the only, and the only reason I ever started reading her was because I met her. She was a speaker at a conference I was at, and I really like her. So. Why do we need funny now? And, and I should say, she's not funny. She's very serious. She's, okay. But why yeah. do we need funny? Oh, my goodness. Well, Ron Al and I were just having a conversation about this. It's tough times. It's a tough world. It's Ron a divided from the world. Library. Yep. Right, mm-hmm. right. And it, I, I mean, it. I think humor really does help. Yeah. It, it does some things, like it takes your mind off things, yeah. and you can go away for a little while and then come back refreshed maybe, and also lessen stress. I, I um, have found that this is, this is kind of sound underhanded, but when you do humor, <laughs> you can kind of, people drop their guard a little bit, mm-hmm. and then you sneak in and tell them something important, and they don't even know what hit them. They're like, oh, I'll think about that anyway. I think it's really valuable for that. That maybe yeah. you can you can actually change minds, but mostly I just think it's fun. And when times are crazy, we kind of need some fun, I think. And you find humor a lot in the everyday. Yeah. So you are one of the columnists who will pick up something simple, like it's Friday the Thirteenth, or I used to work for a haunted house, but I was scared of haunted houses, and then you will turn that into a humor column. Why, why are our lives so funny? Dorothy? Yes. Well, I like to think that yeah. everybody's is. Otherwise, I'm oversharing. <laughs> I like to think that everybody has crazy things happen to them, yeah. and the only reason I make a point of noting them is because I have a deadline. So <laughs> so if everybody had a deadline, more people would pay attention to those things, don't you think? I don't know. Maybe. Did I hear you say that your daughter or your child? My son. Was, your son was born on 
His due date? He was born on his due date. My daughter, too. Because no we never way. miss a deadline. That because was your joke. Because we never miss yeah. a deadline. That's exactly right. But but I have to tell you that my due date was April Fool's Day. Oh, you so got me I that don't one. know what that means. And my sister also had her baby on her due date, and um, she's also a journalist. So I don't know. You know, I think there's something to that. Oh, <laughs> I love that. What? How? Tell me a little bit about your process because it is deadline driven. It is um, published widely in local newspapers with a hyper-local readership. So, you know, it's not the New York Times, but you know who your reader is. I do, is. yeah. What's your process like? Well, so I grew up in a tiny town, um, northwestern South Dakota, Buffalo. And so I kind of, when I was seeking to start self-syndicating, I sought those kind of places because I, I have a small town voice I think a rural voice and so I sought that out and I do keep them in mind it doesn't mean I can't write about you know subways or whatever it is but sure. I just have to keep their life in mind while I do it you know if I write about traveling somewhere big I have to remember who I'm writing for and I just I get these great ideas I just think they're going to be the best ever but you know it turns into work. It always turns into work. Always. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's a but job. <laughs> it's still a uh, job. But yeah. then at the end, I get to have fun again when I'm kind of polishing and, you know, doing some of the tricks you do to make something funnier. It's fun again. But so the process is, is fun, idea, hard work, fun yeah. again. Okay. One, uh, and we have just maybe a minute left. One thing I heard you say, read it out loud. That's a good tip for writers. What's Definitely. another tip for making something funnier? Well, okay. My, one of my very most important ones, I think, is that the end of a sentence is the strongest part of a sentence, which okay. is why the puns always, or the, the you know, the, la, the what am I trying to say? The punchline is always at the end. So when you're rewriting, you always rewrite your sentences so that the strongest part of the sentence is at the end of the sentence, the strongest part of the paragraph. That's at the end of the paragraph. Because that, it, you know, even if it's not hilariously funny, putting it that way does make it funnier. Yeah. All right. One more tip. If you want to write funny, read funny. So yeah, read yeah. Tis the Season to Feel Inadequate. It is about holidays, special occasions, and other times. Our celebrations get out of hand. It's Dorothy Rosby. You can see her present at Augustana University as their fall author. It's at Our Savers Lutheran Church, 730 tonight. We'll have information and links to registration on our website at sdpb.org slash news. Dorothy, I hope this is not the last time that we talk on the radio. You're invited back again. I'd love to come back. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Let's take a moment now for Buffalo Wrangling. Each year at the Buffalo Roundup in Custer State Park, around 30 volunteer riders saddle up alongside park staff. They work in teams to herd bison past a crowd of thousands of spectators and guide the animals into the corral area. Some of the riders have been there before, while others get the call to be a first-time wrangler. My name is Kevin Gross. I live on Lake Cochran at Gary, South Dakota, and I work at Lake Norton Farmers Elevator. You take care of uh, some horses for one of your neighbors. Yes, I do. I take care of Christy Nome's horses for her. Make sure they got feed and check on them once in a while. You got a little treat this year. Well, one day I was at, at the ranch looking for horses and checking to see how much feed she had left. I didn't see no horses, and I looked in the shed, and there was only one bag of feed. And so I texted her, and I said, uh, 
are your horses out west with you? He says, yeah. And I said, you only got one bag of feed. And this is all through a text. And she said, would you be interested in riding the Buffalo Roundup? And yeah, all my horses are out west. So I about fell out of my chair when I, I got that text. What did you do to prepare? Well, just a lot of riding. And I got a lot of hills and I can ride through cows and stuff like that where I live. So I know the buffalo are a little different than a cow, but I know yesterday when we were riding, as soon as she saw them, it's like, uh, okay, when are we going to chase? What, what's your week been like? I took the whole week off and I did some things around home and, you know, did some riding and, and then, then just got ready. We come up here on Wednesday afternoon um, and just got settled in and yesterday was all this that was happening here the orientation and the the ride and introduce your horse to a buffalo and it was good but you had a chance kind of an ad hoc little roundup yesterday afternoon yeah we just kind of went through the buffalo to see where they're at kind of and then we rode the route that we're going to take to get down to the corrals here and listen to all the people cheer and roar and whatever that they do so yeah I, it's pretty exciting i didn't get much sleep last night because i'm pretty pumped <laughs> how long do you think it'll take to get that smile off your face uh you know <laughs> a long time <laughs> this year marked the 58th annual custer state park buffalo roundup Kevin Groves and his fellow cowhands had the perfect day to bring in the herd. The bison are then vaccinated and some are sorted for auction in November. As for Groves, he's back to work in Lake Norton. We'll take a quick break. Teacher Talk is up next. What does it take to become the next classroom leader? You're on Listener Supported SDPB Radio. moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. It's time for our Teacher Talk segment. That's a weekly conversation where educators Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur open the door to the teacher's lounge for a behind-the-scenes look at the education profession. Today we unpack how to become a teacher. Gina Benz joined us in Sioux Falls. Jackie Wilbur was at the SDPB studios on the campus of the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. Jackie Wilbur, we're going to start this conversation with you because we know there is a teacher shortage, and we've already gone into that in depth, and you can find that at sdpb.org slash teacher talk, where we kind of talk about the profession broadly. But that, I don't know about you, Jackie, but I've got a lot of people who have been asking me, so how do I become a teacher? Oh, I'm so <laughs> glad to hear that. You're yes. making a difference already, but that's what you wanted to get into this week. Help me understand why you wanted to focus on here are the actual steps. Yeah, I think uh, same here. People ask me all the time how to become a teacher. So I think it, the, just getting some clarity around that is really good and helping people to kind of see what all goes into it. And then maybe a little selfishly too, I want people to recognize that there's like robust training that goes into becoming a teacher. They didn't just find people and throw them into classrooms, you know, uh, <laughs> that we really do strive to be very educated, well-informed conscious decision makers and that there's a lot that goes into becoming a teacher so I wanted to talk about it. Jackie was there someone who opened that door for you and helped you figure out the next steps? 
Ooh, that's a really good question. You know, yeah, Gina, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we talked about this on the first episode, but the way my entry into education was that um, I graduated with a bachelor's in education, and then I became Gina's long-term sub when she was out on parental leave. And so I had thought about being a teacher before, but I didn't have an undergraduate degree in education. And substitute teaching in Gina's class made me go, oh, this is definitely what I want to do. This is for sure what I want to do. And now I need to figure out the ways to do it. So yeah, yeah. Gina was my, my person. Gina, was there someone with you that helped you take the first steps? You know, I did not go to college to become a teacher, but I changed my mind pretty quickly. I wanted to be a counselor, like clinical, a clinical counselor. And you have to get a graduate degree to do that. And so I always the practical person said, well, I do like reading and writing. Every town needs teachers, so I'll get my bachelor's degree in education and English with the intention of going to grad school to become a clinical counselor. And uh, it was probably Dr. Kurt Olson at USF who changed that for me and flipped the switch to making teaching not my backup plan, but my vision, my passion. Yeah, I love that. All right, Jackie, you need a bachelor's degree. Let's yep. start there. Yeah, so if you are, you know, without a bachelor's degree and wanting to start out your journey that way, that's the that's one straightforward path is to get a bachelor's degree in education. Um, but one thing I think people might not know is that you do need to know what kind of teacher you want to be when you start looking at what university you might want to go to um, because becoming an elementary teacher is a different degree than becoming a secondary teacher or a middle school and high school teacher. Um, so if you decide to go the elementary route, you'll take classes um, that are geared towards that age group and you'll learn content um, for kindergarten through eighth grade. And so that's one major is elementary education. And then another major is secondary education, and that's where you would focus more on a content area. So you can become an English teacher like Gina and I, or you could teach biology, you could teach physical science, you could teach um, music, art, any number of, of content areas. And so when you major in that, then you get more content coursework and have kind of that same, that background in history or that background in, in English, but then take courses as well that help you understand the developmental stages and the best te teaching practices for those students who are sixth through 12th grade, approximately. How, how soon do you have to make the, de the decision? So you, you know, say you're mm -hmm. uh, an incoming freshman, you've, you know, you're graduated in May and now you're starting your path at USD or, or Black Hill State or wherever, and you say, I'm not sure yet. Can I be mm -hmm. not sure when I'm yes. a freshman? Yeah, you absolutely can be not sure. Um, in fact, you don't enter into the School of Education typically until you've had 45 credits. So those first two years, um, although students are more and more um, coming in with credit from dual credit options, so it's not necessarily uh, mm. year-wise, but credit-wise, how many you have. And for us it's at USD, it's 45 credits. Um, and so once you have those 45 credits, then you move into the School of Education and you can say, yes, I'm officially elementary education, I'm officially secondary education, or I'm officially special education. Gina, why did you want to do secondary education? I uh, loved reading and writing. I, yeah. I was that person. And unfortunately, I don't think that was a good reason to go into teaching because I've learned since, and I'm so glad I've developed this, it's more about loving the students than loving mm -hmm. the subject matter. And so I always say, love who you teach, love where you teach, 
love what you teach and in that order. Yeah. I would be a middle school teacher if ah. I could pick. That's, and I know that's kind of rare, but when my daughter was in middle school, that was, I just remember helping out in the class or when I was a, an artist in residence, you go into middle school and you're like, well, this is where the action is at. Yes. <laughs> this is just a yes. whole heap of fun. I thought it was a fantastic time, which doesn't mean it is or it isn't. It just means it resonated with me. And I, you know, I recognize in myself something that enjoyed that kind of energy. Go ahead, Gina. And I think one of the best things about middle school is, and Jackie, correct me if I'm wrong, if you get an elementary degree, you can teach middle school. And mm -hmm. if you get a secondary degree, you can teach middle school. So yeah. you got options there. I love that. All right, yeah. Jackie, so there are also special ed teachers. Is that a separate degree or is that Help me understand people who have a, a love for special education. Yeah, special education is a really special degree. Um, you can get a standalone special education degree at the University of South Dakota and in a number of other universities. And that would allow you to work with special education populations who are in kindergarten all the way through graduating in high school. Um, but it's also one that double majors. So you could double major in elementary education and special education, or you could double major in special education and secondary education. Um, and so then that allows you to work with either population and then either in the, the traditional education classroom or in the special education classroom. Okay, let's talk to the people who, um, not necessarily mid-career, although it might be uh, a mid-career person. It could also be a college graduate who's gotten their four-year degree and then realized that teaching is a way to go, but they didn't, you know, they didn't major in any education. What what do you need to go back to school? Yeah, <laughs> to become a teacher, Jackie. So this is the route that I went, and um, so my my uh, bachelor's degree, like I said, was in in English, and then I chose to go back to get what's called a master's plus certification. Um, and so all those three areas that I just talked about have master's plus initial certification options. Um, so you can go back to school if you have a degree in a content area that it gets taught in middle school and high school. You can go back and get a master's degree plus what you need um, to get certified in the state of South Dakota and then have a second career. And it usually takes about a year and a half to up to three years, depending on how quickly you want to move through the program. Um, and then you're able to be a teacher. So that's an uh, exciting option. I really appreciated doing that for my own self because I don't know that I was totally ready to be a teacher right away, sure. yeah. um, or I didn't know yet that that's what I wanted to do. It really took that experience of being in Gina's class um, to help me kind of understand that that's who I was and that's where I was headed. Well, look, when you're 22, 24, and you want to be a high school teacher, mm -hmm. that, that adds, you know, for example, that adds a, a layer to it. You, you have, you're not that far away from that. High. And if you want to work in your hometown, mm -hmm. that adds another layer. So I don't, Gina, I don't think it would be all that unusual to need a few years to realize that you, you feel like you're capable of doing that, that you'll be accepted um, in a classroom as a leader. I would think it is probably not too rare to have people not major in education, but then go back and try to figure out how to get the the appropriate education to be in the classroom. One hundred percent. When I started teaching in the year two thousand, I did teach some seniors, and there I was, twenty two, twenty three years old, and yeah. they were seventeen, eighteen, and that was a very hard task. And I wish I could go back and redo some things there, but. In my own hallway at my school, I think about uh, one teacher, Mr. Toll. He was in the Army, and when he retired from the Army, he 
he went and got his teaching degree, and now he's a teacher. And then we have uh, Mr. Dunn, and he uh, graduated with, I think, a history degree, and then started at Roosevelt getting his master's in education. Mm. And even um, the teacher across the hall from me, Mrs. Sitter, and this would have been back in the 90s, she uh, didn't have an education degree, but went back and got it. It's incredibly common. And I also think about um, upstairs, Mrs. Pat, she was a nurse, I think, and then went <laughs> back to become a science teacher. It's it's so varied and, and interesting. So what do those people bring to the profession, Jackie? People who have done something else, whether they have military service or they went down a different career path, and then they say, I want to teach. What do they bring to the classroom that's interesting to you? Oh, yeah, so many things. Um, I'll just go back really quick and say, as the person who is 16, 17 years old, uh, when Miss Benz was teaching, she did a phenomenal job. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. You're welcome. And there are people like Gina who are just ready to go out of the gate. You know, they knew and right. they got their degree and they're ready to go. And so that I, I really respect and admire those folks. But for people like me or people who do it, uh, later in life too, they bring that life experience. And I think that that is very valuable to be able to say to the students, you know, when I did this or I did that in my experience in, in not in education, and here's how it applies to quote unquote real life. You know, there there's some of that as well. And then I think they also bring some enthusiasm for teaching. Like a lot of those people, I think really secretly wanted to be a teacher. Maybe they didn't know it necessarily, um, or maybe they did and just didn't feel like they could. And now they're getting to do this thing that they always wanted to do. And so there's this hmm. um, love that that I think comes in like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm getting to do this thing now that I've, I've always kind of thought about. I love that. All right, let's talk about the, um, um Maintaining your teaching license. Tell yeah. me a little bit about um, what that exactly entails. Sure. Um, so I wanted to <clears throat> talk about this a little bit too, because just getting the degree in education, whether it's the undergraduate, the bachelor's degree, or the master's degree, it's not. That's not the end of the journey. Um, there's still in every state. Um, the Department of Education has a teaching license requirement. And so that, that process is a second process um, after you earn your degree, and then you do need to maintain it. Um, so it's an online application. The Department of Education just recently upgraded their website, and so there's kind of, a, I think, a really nice new website that makes it much more streamlined and easier to apply. Um, and then after that, you have to maintain through to professional development and, and continuing education credits that um, current teaching license to continue to teach in the state of South Dakota. All right, Ms. Benz, let's talk about continuing education because I would think this would be a draw for a lot of people who teach are probably lifelong learners themselves. And there's a responsibility to keep your education going, but also an opportunity to say, hey, this has high value. So tell me a little bit about what continuing education looks like in reality. The beautiful thing is there's diverse opportunities. And so you can take a one credit class in the summer and accumulate credits that way. We need six credit hours every five years. Or you can take a full blown three credit hour class, or you can take some different workshops and accumulate your hours there are so many options to meet everybody's schedule. For me, for a long time, I did online at my own pace book studies mm. and wonderful. Let me read a book, let me process it, and then I get 
a credit hour towards certification. And this is in many professions, right? I have a friend who's a physician and she has to do this as well, um, ongoing continuing education. And I have actually reached the point where I don't need any more for my current cycle. Sure. But I just signed up for a course through Auburn University about AI, oh, artificial sure. intelligence, because I want to learn this. I'm excited to learn this. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jackie, specific things to South Dakota teachers that they are required to make sure that they have? Is there something different about teaching in South Dakota than teaching in, you know, uh, Iowa, for example? Yeah. Um, so we, our students take praxis exams as part of their certification process. That's that's uh, not specifically unique to South Dakota, but some states have that and some states don't. Um, the Praxis exams test their knowledge in their content area, and then there's also one that they take before graduating just to make sure they have all of the understanding of, of what it means to be a teacher and, and best practices in the field of education. They also take a suicide awareness training, so they have that um, awareness of what to look for there. And then uh, South Dakota also requires a South Dakota Native Studies course so they can learn about the, the Native population that they might encounter. All right. Now, if you don't want to go through all this, or you can't, it's not the time of life for you, um, you can still work in a school district and sort of be adjacent to educators. I've done this. I was an education assistant in a library yeah. in an elementary school because, I mean, who doesn't want to be an education assistant in the library for a year just to see what yes. that's like? Mm. Yes. <laughs> and it was an absolutely delightful experience. So there are plenty of places you can sort of be supportive. They needed help. I had some availability, and so I said yes, and I, and I loved that experience. There's lots of ways, Gina, let's start with you, to be part of the education system without teaching. As an example, my own sister, Jill, she stepped away from the corporate world, and she's been subbing at the same high school where I teach for three years, I think, and it puts her on the same schedule as her children, which right. is nice as a parent. And now her son is also at the high school. So I got to tell you, one of the greatest joys of my career is being at the same school where my kids are learning. I've gotten to have eight, I will get to have eight straight years of that. And there's nothing better. And Jackie went to school where her dad taught. And so mm -hmm. I'm sure she can speak about that from the child end. But <laughs> you is, know, is it as joyful, Jackie, for the child as it is for the parent? <laughs> I mean, I can only speak from my experience, but yeah, I really yeah. loved ha having my dad at school, and I liked teaching at the same school that my dad taught at even more. That yeah. was great. All right. Other ways that you can participate, obviously volunteering, substituting. Substituting clerical work. is Sure. And a lot of times our clerical have students in the building. We have cooks. And that's a really great flexible schedule for people. Um, and EAs, of course, are some of the biggest ones that where parents are coming in, adults are coming in to work with kids but not have a teaching certificate. That's not a bad way, Jackie, to figure out if you like being in the classroom. Yeah, I think it's the, a great way. The pay is sure. not stellar. I'm it's not, not. I'm not going to lie to you. You're not going to make your rent off of being an EA, most likely. However, if you want to do that as part of a bigger plan or you want to do that to find out, do I like being in the classroom? Is, mm -hmm. is this something that I, you know, can to connect with other teachers? That's a pretty good, a pretty good way to do it. And it's a lot yeah. less responsibility than teaching, too. Yeah. So there is that. <laughs> <laughs> we do recommend that our first, I guess not recommend, but we, we put that out there as an option for our 
those students who are in under 45 credits who are thinking that that would be their major. It's a great part-time job when you're a college student. Um, yeah. yeah, also coaching is another thing that people do. Uh, refing different sports or being an official is another option, being a bus driver. So, and the, there's, like you said, it's not a high paying job, but it has the flexibility. And then it also is that entry level in of, of getting some good experience if you're thinking of going through a teacher preparation program. I love it. All right. Lots of tips and tricks on how to become a teacher, what you need to know. And uh, we'll put some links up on the Teacher Talk blog that will take you to some of those programs so you can learn more. That's online, sdpb.org slash teacher talk. Jackie and Gina, thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> and that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on tomorrow's In the Moment. South Dakota media outlets are diving deep into Governor Christy Nome's Freedom Works Here marketing campaign. They're asking questions like, is the governor mixing national aspirations with South Dakota public money? Who is behind the ad campaign and how did they win the contract? And of course, is Freedom Works here working and for whom? We'll have the Dakota political junkies on tomorrow's show and we will critique the buzz. Keep in mind, if you can't tune in live to In the Moment, you can subscribe to the In the Moment podcast. It's on most podcasting platforms. You can also follow us on Instagram at SDPB News. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.